Welcome to the Diabetics Doing Things podcast. We've been telling the amazing stories of type 1 diabetics all across the world since 2015, and we have over a thousand years of living with T1D on the podcast. The interviews range from incredible feats to everyday victories, and we celebrate them all just the same. Thanks for listening, and if you want to get involved even further, just send me an email at rob at diabeticsdoingthings.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We are telling the amazing stories of type 1 diabetics from all across the world. And my very special guest, uh, calling from New York, New York today, Miss Ariel Lawrence. Welcome to the show. Hello. How are you, Rob? <laughs> I'm doing fantastic. Uh, for those of you who don't know Ariel by her real name, uh, you might know her as Just a Little Sugar on Instagram. Yes. Sorry, I just outed you. You're now it's now the episode is completely uh, your your disguise has been lifted. It's okay. Everyone knows my government name. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> yeah. When my mom calls me Robert, I always shiver because I know it's like, oh, now now everyone knows my government name. Look out. It's all good. Uh, so Ariel, tell us a little bit about how you joined the type one diabetes family. Haha. <laughs> okay. So how I joined the family, I feel like that's a hard question. So I first joined the family when I was diagnosed 12 years ago um, at this point, around this time, honestly. So I remember being diagnosed around the end of April, early May. I don't remember the specific date. Um, I don't know if it makes sense for me to tell you kind of the events that led up to that diagnosis. Yeah, why not? Okay, so yeah, um, I remember it was spring of my sophomore year. Um, around that time, I thought I was being super health conscious, like me and one of my close girlfriends, we decided to do like this water challenge. Um, and so she would bring like four, one and a half liter bottles of water to school. Um, and we would challenge each other or guess have a little competition to see, um, who could finish the most of that by the end of the day. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and so with that came frequent urination, or at least I thought it was the result of me drinking so much water. Um, and then I also at the same time began to lose weight, but again, you know, silly teenage me, I was just like, you know what, this is because I'm taking more care of myself. Like, yeah, I'm drinking water because duh, that equates to, you know, big health gains, or at least that's what I thought at the time. Um, and so that was happening. I was urinating a lot. Um, I was losing weight. And then around that time, I decided to take a trip to visit my sister who was away at school at the time in Massachusetts. And so I went away for the weekend. um, And I remember being on the bus um, and having a really hard time just trying to hold my urine, like drinking soda. um, And then like 15 minutes later, having to use the bathroom and then just like talking to myself, like, no, you cannot get up again. You just went. Um, And so when I went to Massachusetts to see my sister, um, she would keep like a caseload of water in her fridge. And so while I was there, I was just going through her water. And then she said that like, I would wake her up at night often to go use the restroom. Um, So that was happening. 
Um, when I came back to New York, she spoke to my mom and said, hey, you know, Ariel has lost a lot of weight. She's also been like drinking up on my water. I don't know what's going on with this girl. Hmm. Um, and so at that point, it's funny because I spoke to my mom earlier today just around like my diagnosis story and what she remembered. And she said that it was like that point where she kind of realized that something might have been wrong with me, but she still didn't feel comfortable kind of like verbalizing that. Um, so I kind of remember, I guess, uh, the last moment for me that really propelled me to go to the doctor and figure out what was going on was when I went to go get my hair done and I was at the Dominican hair salon getting a blowout, um, which usually only takes about 20 minutes but I could not sit in the seat for longer than maybe five or seven without having to use the bathroom. Um, so at that point, I came back home and I told my mom, I was like, you know, I really think I have diabetes. Um, and at that point, like I was very much familiar with the symptoms of diabetes because I thought I wanted to be a doctor. I went to a specialized science high school. I went to a science magnet middle school. Um, I knew about the immune system. I had some awareness of different autoimmune diseases. So I remember going to my mom and telling her like, man, I think I'm like displaying the symptoms of type one diabetes. And she's reluctantly said, you know, I hear you. We're going to take you to the doctor. Um, next day I went to the doctor, um, did the typical, blood work. Um, and then a day later, the doctor called my father and told him that they needed to take me to the hospital. Um, so long story short, my dad, I live in Queens. I don't know how much you know about New York. I live in Queens, New York. I went to high school in the Bronx. My dad came all the way to the Bronx to pick me up and take me to the hospital. But instead of taking me to a local hospital, um, my mom, who was very much familiar with how uh, hospitals in certain areas, especially within black neighborhoods, um, tend not to offer the best care because she was very adamant about her daughter receiving the best of the best. They took me all the way out to Long Island. So I went to Long Island Jewish Hospital, um, which was maybe like a 45 minute at the very least drive um, from my high school. Uh, and then I spent maybe three or five days there, I can't really remember. Um, and I began to adjust to my new life as a type one diabetic. Um, and to be quite honest, I remember when I was first diagnosed, I, unlike a lot of other people, like I wasn't really startled or afraid. Um, I remember being familiar with diabetes because one, my grandmother was a type two diabetic. Um, and from what I understood, I mean, I knew she didn't take care of herself, but mm. I knew that she looked well. Um, so I didn't really fully understand, I guess, the risks for complications and all of those things. And also, I think naive me believed that, you know, if I just took care of myself, if I listened to doctor's orders, if I, you know, took my medication properly and carb counted correctly, then I would be fine. Um, so I remember just having a very kind of stoic mindset and even encouraging my mom at that point, who to some extent like was more discouraged and startled than I was. Um, and so I would say that's where it started. It wasn't until maybe a year later that the reality of the disease kind of hit me. And I remember like breaking down in my room by myself. Mm. Um, I don't recall telling a parent. I remember my brother came and like, just so happened to come into my room and he asked me like, hey, what's going on? But he was also six years younger than me. Um, right. And I was 15 at the time, so he was around like, I don't know, nine, 10. Um, so he really didn't understand what I was going through. 
but once I, you know, cried it out, let it out, I was kind of just like, this is my life. You know, let me do the best that I can do to treat this. Um, let me do the best that I can do to make sure that I can live healthy and well. Um, so that was like my first initiation or induction into the type one diabetes community. Um, and then in terms of me becoming active within the online diabetes community, that didn't actually happen until 2014 um, after the passing of my grandmother, who was a type two diabetic. So I can talk more about that if you want. Yeah, I, I think let's, I, I want to talk about that. Um, mm -hmm. Because often I think there most most people with type 1 diabetes who are living and thriving with it i think get diagnosed twice right you get diagnosed by the doctor and then you have that moment of acceptance where you know you talked about at the end of your sort of breakdown in your room you then refocus and and kind of continue to live on past that um, and there's different complications associated with each one but then also you know from an activism standpoint i think it's three times because then you realize, oh, I, can, I have a chance that I can help people and, you know, a positive message to spread. So I definitely want to focus on uh, your sort of second diagnosis, as you mentioned earlier, as you called it earlier. Uh, mm -hmm. But one, I, I got to say, I got to go back to the first interesting thing that I heard was that you and your, your friend were having a drinking competition. Did you win every single day, I imagine? Like just with the, over, the thirst from diabetes? I, was she discouraged I, at all by her progress? I feel like I should have, right? Considering how uh, thirsty I was. But honestly, I don't remember. I don't know who the winner was. That was a real long time ago. That's funny. Um, I just, uh, I thought about that and I laughed. Um, but <laughs> so you're, and, and then I think the next thing, I've, I've talked to a, a few people who were you know, self-diagnosis, I would say, like that they knew <laughs> definitively, like, oh, yeah, these are my symptoms. This is what's going on. Um, and everyone's parents, I think, have different reactions. What what kind of relationship do you have with your mom where you came to her and then the next day she was like, yeah, we should go. Like, I think you know what you're talking about. Let's go to the doctor. Yeah. So I would say uh, me and my mom have a great relationship, super open, can communicate to her about anything. Um, and I think whenever I have a concern, she's always made me feel validated and listened to. And so I think part of the reason why she was so quick to take me to the doctor was because she felt something was wrong. Um, and in talking to her today, I realized that she was like, you know, I had a feeling that that might have been the issue. And so I feel like she just needed someone else maybe to verbalize that because she was, um, I don't want to say fearful, but maybe she was fearful to do it on her own. Um, so I think the fact that I had said something that kind of just confirmed what she had already thought, which is why she was so willing to kind of just, you know, take that next step and actually bring me to the doctor's office. I think that's so important, though. I mean, just having that openness and communication. Uh, when I talk to parents of type ones who are struggling, uh, I have to kind of talk them back because my parents were very similar. I didn't diagnose myself, but my mom knew something was wrong to me to the doctor. We have a very open relationship. And, and I think even now, you mentioned talking to your mom today about it. Uh, I, when I talk to my parents today about my diabetes and the diagnosis, I think so much of, as a parent of the fear of diabetes comes from what you don't know and the fear of the mm -hmm. unknown and the lack of explanation of why this happened. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So it's so funny because when I talked to her, she said that her whole feelings were, God, why is this happening to me? <laughs> Um, and then also she brought something, a perspective that I hadn't yet considered before, which was that she said that she throughout her life had experienced loss. 
Hmm. So she lost her father at a young age, around 13, 14. And two years before I was diagnosed, she lost her brother. And she came from a very small nuclear family. So she shared with me that um, she was kind of at a point where because she had experienced, I guess, so much trauma, loss at um, a young age, she kind of felt like, God, at the very least, <laughs> the very least you could do is give me a healthy child. Hmm. Um, and so she was very, I guess, dismayed, disappointed by the reality that now her daughter would be living with this chronic condition. And I think it's, it's interesting, you, you look at both sides of that coin. Uh, on one hand, you know, yeah, I think putting yourself in her shoes, that sense of fear and loss and why me it could could be overwhelming, but I think also maybe prepared her for dealing with, uh, you know, a, a child who has to overcome living with a chronic illness, right? And I think in some ways, when I talk to young kids, I, I, that's what really, when I talk to people with diabetes, the people who blow me away the most are the young children and teens because mm-hmm. they have grown up so fast and they're so good at dealing with things not working out at a young age mm-hmm. that... You know, obviously, like if you had to choose, you would never give them diabetes. But living their life through that lens of, well, whatever happens today, whatever my blood sugar is, I've still got to keep going. Mm-hmm. That yeah, sense that's... of loss is it's it's almost a skill you can't teach, especially for people you know who don't have any other real you know chronic hardship in their life. Maybe that's, maybe that's a bad example, but yeah, for people, it gives it's a good example for kids who, you know, don't have to, we don't have to struggle for food normally, right? We don't have to go hunt our own things, but we have to overcome this disease at an early age and prepares us for dealing with other types of adversity long-term. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, when I think of, so I, I think for the most part, I try to like maintain a positive outlook when it comes to dealing with things in life. Um, I don't know if all of that came from, you know, being diagnosed with diabetes, but I know that when I think about my life as a type one diabetic at this point, I think I'm always trying to look for the silver lining. And so, yes, I can certainly say that I have, I think I've become or grown to be more resilient um, than some of my peers. I've had to acquire that skill at an earlier age than some of my peers because, you know, I've had to deal with the chronic nature um, and the seriousness of this disease. So yeah, it does kind of force us young people <laughs> mm-hmm. to grow up quicker than maybe some of our peers or friends who don't have to deal with something so heavy. And in what ways, uh, I know you mentioned the the sort of breakdown in your room. Um, what other What other adversity or maybe obstacles did you have to overcome either early on or in high school, college, those, those years that are so tough anyway, that when you also throw the, you know, the chronic illness and the, you know, the highs, the lows, the what have you, the technology, the reliance on insulin, uh, any other things stand out to you that you're like, yeah, you know, I have to deal with this, but I'm still, you know, standing through it and, and overcoming these obstacles. Hmm. Um, and that's and I, I totally jumped you with that question. So I, I, I know it's uh, I know it's like a, <laughs> as long as you know. Um, no, I think in terms of like managing diabetes and also realizing or having to manage like other difficult circumstances, um, I would say that college was a very difficult time for me because I went to, uh, I went to Princeton. 
and so I was in an environment that was super competitive, um, super stressful. And I really had to figure out how to get all my work done, follow through on my social and personal commitments, so any clubs that I might be involved in. And then also on top of that, like manage my diabetes and also make sure that I wasn't neglecting that part of myself. And to be honest, um, I was like always a serious child, like a super serious, like studious child. And so work was very important to me. Um, and I remember like my family, it's kind of a joke, but it's not really a joke, but we'll say like, <laughs> Ariel, you know, part of the reason why you have type one diabetes is because you just, you just overworked yourself. You're always stressing about stuff and maybe, you know, that has something to do with it. But, um, obviously, you know, that's not it. But I say that to say that managing work for me has always been difficult, um, when I factor in my diabetes because I have tendency to want to put forth my best effort and energy to the point where I am staying up all night or to the point where I might be skipping out on meals. Um, and obviously, I think there's also a component of diabetes that for me at least has impacted, I guess, my mental health and anxiety um, and dealing with anxiety on top of juggling all of these demands. And so I don't know. I just feel like I've always tried to stay positive with what I feel and experience. Um, but I think because I kind of carry the load and the weight of diabetes, it's also made some things like adjusting to life at Princeton not feel so bad. So I know for some of my peers who were like, you know, super stressed, they're super depressed because of all the work that was being thrown their way. I was kind of just like, eh, yeah, I'm stressed out. But at the end of the day, I know that this is not it. You know, right. this is not the end of the world. So I don't know if I answered your question. I feel like I probably didn't. Um, but I said that all to say that uh, in terms of juggling life, like it's always been diabetes plus work and trying to figure out how to best navigate work um, along with taking care of myself and not neglecting myself in the process. Well, I think you did answer the question, and I'll tell you why. I really and I, you really gave me this like great analogy, or not, not not even analogy, just like a great way to describe this mentality of diabetes plus. Just mm -hmm. and, and I think I was very similar. I knew I knew this conversation was going to go great. I knew we were going to get along good um, <laughs> because I was I was very similar. Um, I think that I'm not sure if type A personalities breed type one diabetics, but I know that type one <laughs> diabetes breeds type A personalities. Um, so they somehow play into each other. But for me, you know, I would hear just like you said, like people, I didn't go to Princeton's. My school was nowhere near that kind of uh, level of study. I went to state school, but people would complain. I hear people complain in class and they'd be like, oh man, my workload's so crazy. I'm never going to pass this class. And I was like, well, uh, I'm playing basketball 40, 40 hours a week, traveling all the time, and I have diabetes, and I'm okay. I don't know. This will be fine. <laughs> and I think part of that is, and you know, you're talking about mental health, you were talking about staying positive, but that's like an active choice. You know, that doesn't just happen. I, I, and you know, for some people, there it's easier than others. But mm -hmm. for me, I think in those college years where uh, there's a lot of stuff going on, you're learning a lot about yourself, uh, and you're either living away from home potentially for the first time and 
you have all these things to juggle and you're the only one responsible, you learn and you deal and you, that's where you build your tactics. So whether that's, you know, staying positive and being relentlessly positive is what, um, this, I read this tweet from John Calipari back when I was in college and he was talking about their mentality as a team is to stay so relentlessly positive that even when something goes bad, things can be tough. The world can be swirling all around, but everyone's mindset is the same. Yeah. Um, hmm. And I think that, you know, that's a sports example. And my entire, everything I ever talk about comes back to sports because that's what I know. But um, that applied to life with diabetes is so es- essential. And I think I'm glad you talked about the college years because I think that's a lot of parents' biggest worry. And yet you still were like, yeah, diabetes plus all these dreams that I want to live. I want to go to Princeton. I want to go live my life. And I'm just going to deal with diabetes along the way. Yeah. Um, if you were, you know, going back and um, putting yourself in those positions of, hey, or, or in that back in that like time where you're making those decisions about your life with your family, was there ever a moment where you said, hey, maybe I should think about this about, you know, because I have diabetes or was that just, hey, I'll deal with it. I'm going to chase my dream. I'm going to live it all the way and we'll deal with it as it comes. You mean in terms of making decisions, like certain decisions where I ever felt like, hmm, maybe yeah. I should rethink this because of diabetes? I don't know about rethink, but just like, is this a factor or uh, or not? I would say sometimes diabetes is a factor, but it's not a huge one. Like it's something that I would put thought to. So for example, let me give you yeah, a specific example. My sophomore year, I wanted to study abroad in Ghana. Um, and it was like the first time I think like I would be leaving the country for an extended period of time. So the idea was that I would be traveling between Ghana and London over the course of six weeks. Um, And for me personally, it was an opportunity that I did not want to pass on. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm obsessed with West African culture. Like I was like that black girl, I'm black American. Um, But I was that black girl who was like in the African Student Association Club, um, just pretending that I was from some West African country. So I was like, no, I have to go to Ghana I don't care about diabetes, we're gonna figure it out. Um, But I know for my mother, she had a lot of fears um, and she was concerned about how I would be able to take care of myself, um, if there would be reliable refrigeration, if there would be um, a place to go to in the event that something happened to my insulin. And so, you know, there, there have been moments where I've had to like factor consider my diabetes and how, you know, that might play out if I either go to a new space or I'm in a new environment, but I've never allowed that to be a deterrent. Now, there was one time, I would say, where I made a choice after undergrad, I went to work for Teach for America. I don't know if you've heard of that program, Mm -hmm, but I did Teach for America and I was placed at a extended day charter school. So the day for students began at 7 a.m. and it ended for students at 5 p.m., which meant that uh, staff had to be in the schools before like 6.45 and we often didn't leave until 5.30. Initially, I didn't really think about like how my health might play into my effectiveness as a teacher or like to what extent I might enjoy this experience, but I quickly found out from that experience that 
as a type one diabetic, there are just certain environments that I cannot be in. Um, I can't be, I can't work necessarily an, an extended school day like that. I don't think it's feasible for right. what I need in terms of my health needs. Um, I need an employer who is flexible and understands that sometimes I need to take off because I'm not feeling well, or sometimes I need to take off to go to the doctor. So I would think like, I would say initially, um, when it came to like big choices in my life, mm, no, I didn't really consider diabetes because I was very much of the mindset that if I want to do something, I'm going to do it. Um, but it wasn't until later on in life that I realized that in terms of like professional environments and things of that nature, like, yes, I need to consider my disease and like to what extent I will be able to take care of myself well if I allow myself to be in a specific space. And I think that, well, I mean, I couldn't have put it better myself like that. And everyone is different, I think, but prioritizing and learning and like, there's really no teacher like experience, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you get put yourself in those positions and then you quickly realize that, um, you know, you need somebody that will allow you to go to the doctor. You need a schedule that's flexible. And it's not just the hours, right? Like being with students all day where you're responsible for them, that can sometimes be, you know, the biggest part of that specific example, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was an intense place. I remember like there was a no sitting policy. I'm like, that's not going to work if I have a low. And like, granted, <laughs> you know, they did try to make minor exceptions for me here and there. Um, but in terms of like what was actually best for me, I don't think, you know, it was a good fit. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's hard to. I don't know whether it's culturally or, you know, I'm not, I'm not even sure. I'm probably, I'm thinking I'm reaching at this point, but, you know, prioritizing yourself isn't always the most popular decision, uh, especially in organizations that don't value that. So, you know, finding those where, finding that place where, you know, you've been upfront about everything from a diabetes perspective and you say, Hey, I still need this to work for me and my health. Uh, Sometimes when the answer is not, the right one from the organization, that can be a tough place to, you know, or e I guess the decision becomes easier at that point, maybe that, you know, that you have to look somewhere else, but that's always not always an easy thing to swallow. Yeah, it isn't always an easy thing to swallow. But as I've grown, I've realized yeah. the importance of, you know, prioritizing my well being. And so that is something I have to take into consideration at this point. So Speaking of that, like as you've grown, so 2014, um, you mentioned that your grandmother passed away. Um, mm -hmm. Walk us through, you know, when you knew it was your, uh, when you when you had your moment of, you know, I want to be active and I want to use, uh, you know, build a platform uh, around type one diabetes. Yeah. So um, it was before she actually passed. So my grandmother. Like the summer of 2014, she made the decision that she wanted to go into hospice. Um, but before, uh, she had like recently had both her legs amputated. Um, so it was clear to me that even before 2014, that there was kind of like this stage of demise that she was going through. Hmm. Um, and so as I began to experience that, um, I realized that perhaps I needed some type of community. Um, I remember like while she was in the hospice and, you know, like witnessing her deteriorate, like going home, crying hysterically because I thought that meant that that could possibly be me. And granted, my grandmother was a type two diabetic and there are a whole bunch of comorbidities um, and her case was a very unique one. 
But you're not thinking about all of that. You just see someone suffering, or I wasn't thinking about all of that. I just saw someone suffering from complications of diabetes and every worse or terrible thought that could have gone through my mind did. Mm. Um, and I remember like trying to confide in close friends, like people I expected to listen and to be empathetic and being told like, oh man, I can't take that. Oh no, please don't tell me that. Oh no, like I can't hear about your grandma. And it was just like, hmm. imagine how I feel. You can't take this. Um, so that was like the first indication to me that I probably needed a community of some sort. Um, and so I didn't necessarily know what I wanted that community to look like. Um, what I did know though, was that following her passing, I just felt like I had a lot of stuff on my chest that I needed to get out. Um, and I needed to write about it. And so I feel like for me, um, like I didn't launch my blog until 2016, but the first or two of the first blog posts were actually written in 2014. And so that writing for me was um, cathartic in a sense and allowed me to kind of release some of the frustrations, loneliness, um, that I was experiencing at that time and really articulate to other people like what it was I was truly feeling. Um, so yeah, I wrote those things in 2014. I kind of just sat on it because, you know, life, sure. life happens. I was going through some transitions. I was studying grad school. Um, and then I just got to a point where, you know, when I'm all about kind of like living a very purpose-driven life. And sometimes I feel like when things just sit on your heart and mind and you think about it constantly, to me, that's an indication that like, I need to do something. I need to take the next step with it. Right. It's, um, it's important to you. Yeah, exactly. So finally in 2016, I was like, I don't know what I'm waiting for. I know what I need. Like I, you know, had gone through this process in 2014 where I was grieving my grandmother's death. I was writing about it. I had gone onto online communities um, that talked about diabetes. You know, it was cool and everything. Like there were people who were openly sharing their stories, but I was like, okay, where are the people who look like me? Um, I didn't see anyone who looked like me. So I've always been of the mindset. I've always been the type of person, like if there is something that I want to do that doesn't exist, if there's a community that I feel like I need to be a part of that doesn't exist, fine. I will do the work and create it. And so I got to a point where I was like, you know what? I just want to create this community for um, diabetics of color. I can start by sharing my own experience. Um, but my hope is to also you know, empower other diabetics of color through my story, get them to become more outspoken about what it is that they are feeling and experiencing, and hopefully also giving them the opportunity to connect with one another. So, you know, I still have a lot of work to do in terms of accomplishing all of those goals. Um, but in 2016, I was finally like, you know what, like you've waited on this long enough, you've sat on this long enough, it is your time to just put this out there and see what happens. Well, I'm really glad you did. Um, a, and because I think it, it brought, I mean, I am, I relate to that on like such a spiritual level of like, Hey, having something to do, knowing you're supposed to do it and finding, you know, m meaningless day-to-day -day tasks or a million other things to do without doing it. I mean, it's like the writer's curse, right? You can't write a page if there's dirt on your shoes that you wore yesterday, because <laughs> what if you have to wear those shoes out and there's dirt on them, you know, you got to go clean them. Um, but I think, you know, now, uh, you know, this this community especially was was built on that as well, because I in a, in my own way and everyone in their own way. Right. When they get diagnosed with type one, 
looks for people like them uh, mm-hmm. or who or who yep. do, who do the things that they want to do or love to do um so for me that's what i wanted i wanted to create diabetics doing things whatever that was so that someone who loved that thing could find it so let's talk about let's talk about diversity a in in t1d and you know, creating that community because I'm sure along the way you found so many people who felt the exact same way and needed a place to go. Mm. Because because let's be honest, and I have to credit or give credit where credit's due. My friend Joe Jones, uh, shout out Joe Jones, who's one of my dear friends, who's not uh, a Type One, but when I posted a picture from Type One Nation in Dallas earlier this year, uh, it was one of the teen panels, and all of the uh, with Libby, Libby Russell, Lauren Bongiorno, Austin First, Gretchen Audi, and Laura Pavlakovich. Pavlakovich, she's going to hear that and get really mad at me. <laughs> um, we, are, we are all white. And, we were yeah. in a, and, and you know, Joe commented, he's like, I don't want to, he's like, I don't want to call this out. He's like, because I don't know. He's like, but you guys are all white. Um, is that a mm. normal thing? And I said, you know what? It's, you know, people of color have, di- have type 1 diabetes. And, yes. we, you know, we didn't represent them. And so we saw there were two kids. I told you this before the call. Uh, there were two uh, African-American kids in the in the room and they I, I couldn't help but relate to them to say, hey, like none of these people look like me. T1D doesn't look like me. I don't belong here. And they weren't a part of the activity and they kind of left the room before it was over. And I felt like we really failed them in, mm-hmm. that, in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um so I I now am going to hand the mic over to you and let you do uh, the work that I, that you're so great at. <laughs> I don't know about all that. I'm just trying. Um, so talk about diversity within the T1D community. Um, so I I guess I'll start by saying like I've grown up kind of accustomed to being the only one, only female, only black girl, whatever within a particular space. So I was never intimidated by that. Um, but yes, I, you know, I'm a black girl with type one diabetes. I remember in high school when I was first diagnosed, I ran into a classmate, an Indian girl, um, who also had type one diabetes. So I knew that there were people of color out there. Um, and I remember in college, like kind of like hearing through the grapevine, like I am in a sorority. Um, and so I met one of my like diabetes through my sorority because people talk. (laughs) Um, And, you know, during our initiation process, onboarding process, um, someone told her that there was another black girl living with type one diabetes. So I I was always aware that, you know, we existed or there were other people of color living with diabetes out there. Um, And then through that connection, she ultimately introduced me to some of her friends, which were brown and black folks living with type one diabetes. Um, And then I decided, you know what, again, because I wasn't gonna be deterred that there weren't people who looked like me within the diabetes space. I was like, you know what, if I'm really gonna talk about diversity and the need for diversity and the need for representation within, you know, particular spaces or diabetes focused organizations, then I have to do my part and I have to be willing to show up, even if it means I might be the only person. So then I was like, you know, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to invite my tribe. Um, And I remember I met one of my other besties through one of my good girlfriends who came and supported me at a JDRF walk. Um, So in terms of 
the issue of diversity within the diabetes community. I think there, there are a variety of factors or causes that lead to that. So one, you know, some of it is education and thinking about um, resources and who has access to resources or who feels empowered to seek out certain health resources. Uh, typically, that's not people of color. Typically, that's not people coming from low-income communities, right? Um, when you think about some of the other diabetes communities that might focus on um, raising money, fundraising, mm, I don't have necessarily the best network to help you raise money, right? And I know some other people of color, I don't want to speak for everyone, but they might not necessarily be inclined to connect with an organization whose main purpose is to fundraise because I don't have that type of financial capital. Um, so that can be a deterrent in ways. Um, again, when you don't see people like you, not everyone is as bold and as willing to say, you know what, I'll make space for myself. Some people see that as a closed door and are unwilling to kind of take the leap and jump into a space where they are one of few people represented. Um, I think for me, what I've learned is that I would say at this point, in terms of really addressing the issue of diversity within um, these diabetes platforms, I think there needs to be kind of like a two-pronged approach, right? So the first, I think there has to be a certain level of intention on the organizations that are planning these conferences and summits. Um, the same way, like I'm one of those people, I will look up, you know, the diabetes hashtag on Instagram and keep looking until a person of color and be like oh my gosh who is this person like let me get to know them let me reach out to them let me connect with them so i feel like there has to be a certain level of intention where people understand and realize the value of incorporating diverse voices um everyone's experience of living with diabetes is unique um and there are certain factors you know racial social economic that also kind of affect how we experience disease. And I think until we become intentional about like really seeking out those unique experiences, then the rooms are gonna look pretty darn homogenous, right? So I think that's one kind of approach or thing that people need to take into consideration. And I think the second part of that is also empowering people of color to become more vocal and to realize that they deserve and they have every right to take up space within certain environments. Um, and so part of my hope is that I can do some of that by providing like visible examples of black and brown folks living with diabetes and hopefully encourage other people in the process to say, you know what, like, hmm, Maybe diabetes might have been a private thing for me to deal with or manage before. Maybe I didn't understand or see the importance of speaking out about it. But now that this girl who looks like me, who's coming from the same place as me, who understands like my culture, what we eat, like how we work, whatever. Now that, you know, I see her and she's vocal about her disease, maybe I can be vocal too, right? So I think like I don't know. That last part kind of deals with just like the importance of representation in any field. If you think about it, yep. like yep. the more you see people who look like you doing something, the more it becomes or seems possible for you to also do that thing. Um, so I don't know. Well, and I think on the opposite end of that, 
the le- the fewer that you see, it kind of has the same effect in the opposite direction. And I think that's where, you know, that's why, you know, we, we are obviously having this conversation so that stops happening, right? Because um, I think there's a, there's a little bit, and I don't want to speak for all the organizations because I, but I think there's a little bit of check the box um, and say, hey, well, we are making this available when they think they are, but they're really not. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we say T1D looks like me, but does it really look like everyone or do we, do we showcase everyone? Mm-hmm. And that's where I think that level of like just being intentional comes in and like really seeking out different people, right? It's really easy to tap into your own personal networks, et cetera, or communities that are easily accessible. Um, but sometimes, and like, maybe you might not be the best person to do that. Maybe you need to get an ally, Um, or someone that looks like the people that you're looking or hoping to serve. Um, But you have to be willing to kind of seek out people who are different from you. Um, And not everyone is always confident, willing to do that, because it seems scary. Well, it is. And And I think, you know, all those things are scary and impossible until they're done, right? Until you just do it. Um, Since you made that choice, and really, you know, in 2016 took that on and, and really embodied it and were very intentional with it. What, um, you know, how is that, how is that community? Did you find what you were looking for? What's the, what's been your favorite part of, uh, of being that person and being vocal and, and finding those people of color with living with diabetes? Um, you know, give me, give us a sense of what that has been like for you. So one of the things that I always wanted to do in starting my platform was to, provide people with an example of diabetics of color who are like living well, who are involved in the diabetes space, who are vocal. And I have come across those people. Um, And so that's been rewarding for me personally. Um, And I'm getting to a place where I'm finally being able to, excuse me, where I'm finally able to share Um, what I've learned and who I've met with other people. Um, But that's also kind of been a slow process and one that I hope to kind of dig more deeply into, like just really being able to expose everybody to the many other people of color who are doing awesome work within the diabetes community um, or who are doing awesome work in general unrelated to diabetes, but also happen to be living with diabetes. Um, So I've made those connections for myself And that's been rewarding. And it's been encouraging to hear people say, like, I really appreciate you being outspoken about your experience. I feel the same way or I've thought the same thing or I've been discouraged. And like now I feel motivated or empowered to speak up more like that's that's always refreshing, especially when I feel, you know, a bit discouraged. Um, But I certainly think that just in general, there's more that I can do. And my hope is to really like start connecting other people with each other. Cause I feel like I have a, I'm getting a sense of kind of like who's who, where people are. Um, and I'm doing like these kind of like one-off connections. Like, oh, you need to meet this person. They're also based in Atlanta. Or, oh, do you know about her? She's based in your area. But I wish that there was a more like kind of streamlined way of doing that. So I've been thinking about that. Um, but I would say overall, like, I'm excited, I guess, with, you know, the work that I've done. Um, 
but it just makes me feel like, man, there's still so much more to do. And maybe that's that type A personality speaking. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Like, there's a couple like type A trigger phrases that I heard throughout uh, through the whole explanation. Oh, um, on it. Which I'm hey, on. It's I, no, I it's not. It is not a problem. I I just relate to it. I think you know, it's like, oh yeah, oh there she goes, not giving herself credit for everything she's already done. <laughs> um, you talked a little bit about you know wanting to be the connector, but for you, um. What do you, what gives you the most hope in this? What what are you hopeful for? What do you want this to become? What do you um how what is it what is the what's the ideal scenario for you to say, wow, you know, we've made an impact and you know, what can what can other people do to help with that? Huh. It's a tough question, Rob. I hey, um, they, they they don't pay me, but if they did, it would be to ask the tough questions, I guess. I see. <laughs> Um, so what was it? What is there still to do? Is that what you're asking me or no, what? I, I mean, I don't want it to be as, as like, you know, what do we, what do we do from here? But I think, you know, for you, what, when you get super fired up and empowered by the work that you've done, like, mm-hmm. and you can admit to getting excited about the work that you, that you, the great work that you do, um, what, what do you say? Yeah, we need more of this. Like, let's do more of this right now. What are those things? I would love, we need more community. Um, And I mean, we need more community among other diabetics of color and the people who support them and even allies who maybe not be of color, but understand the importance of representation and honoring the experience of everyone. Um, And whenever I get fired up, it's always about this idea of like, how can I most effectively, again, connect people with each other. Because like Instagram, which is my primary means of, I guess, you know, building community and also through my blog, like it's great. You can comment on on people's photos, but in terms of really like pushing for an ongoing dialogue, I don't know if Instagram is necessarily the best space for that, right? So like a Facebook group would be something great. I would love to do that. Um, more in-person connections. If there were more opportunities for that, that would be awesome. I mean, you know, it's lovely to see people through my phone, but it's even more powerful when I can meet someone who looks like me in person and we can both like pull out our pumps or check our blood sugar together. Um, so I don't know. I think like when I think about the um, the shoot that I did for Black History slash Women's Month um, with my two diabetes, one thing that came up frequently was people wishing that they knew they had someone in real life who had diabetes, who they could connect with, hang out with, et cetera. And so if I could provide people the opportunity to connect in person um, with other diabetics of color within their area, um, that would be so awesome. Like I would feel so fulfilled and feel like I am getting closer to this goal of building a tangible community for diabetics of color. 
Well, not to be even more type A, but you're speaking it into existence. So, uh, hey, man, I receive it. Yeah, it's there. It's out there. I, and I, you know, I just in the, you know, hour that we've been talking, I can tell it, that will happen for you. Uh, when and where I can't, I don't know. I'm not, uh, I'm not speaking, but I'm speaking it. I think it like it is a, and the power of, uh, of speaking that into existence is not something that's just like words, right? Uh, yeah. for me, I underestimated the impact it would have on me to interact with people that I didn't know with diabetes face to face. Um, so at the end of last year, I, I just spoke it to some friends. I said, I'm going to go, I'm not just going to be on Instagram. I'm not just going to be on the podcast. I'm going to go see people face to face across the country. And I'm just going to try to make it happen, whatever I've got to do. And I realized, and I went to an event in February and this little kid came up to me and he was super embarrassed and he was probably five years old. And Mm -hmm. his mom was like, Hey, you know, my son wanted to meet you. And I could tell he was embarrassed, but I had never done a pump bump that I've seen kids do on Instagram uh, and talk about, but I, and like in that a pump bump, I don't know. It was just like where you like bones, your pumps together. You just like bump them together, (laughs) which is like a silly thing. Right. But I had never even under like I'd never wanted to do it, never thought about doing it, never had even considered. And this kid, I had no way he wasn't going to talk to me, but I took my pump out and he took his pump out and he bumped it together and just like his face lit up. And I thought, okay, this is what face to face is like, because I didn't get a bunch of followers. I didn't get a bunch of likes in that moment. I didn't get a bunch of downloads. But that face to face interaction was worth so much to me. So. I, th- I think I would I wouldn't underestimate the power of creating those communities and those in person interactions will have on you as well, um, mm-hmm. and I'd encourage you to just do whatever you can to make it happen. Oh, thank you, thank you for that. Now I feel so energized, and I'm probably going to get off this call and um, <laughs> begin some brainstorming. Well, good, and let please let me know how I can help. Um, um, that's. This is a, I think, you know, in that moment and Libby and I, Libby Russell and I have had conversations about seeing those kids in the room and then not being able to get to them uh, before they left a few times. And just like, so what you're doing is super, super important. Um, Mm -hmm. And like you said, there are allies that uh, are not diabetics of color who, um, who have seen and experienced how important it is for this to happen. So, um, Whatever, whatever I can do to help you, please let me know, and I'll do whatever I can. Well, thank you. I'll take you up on that offer, and I really enjoyed that conversation. Your questions were hard. Well, um. with that, I can't let you. I can't let you go yet because I have one more question that I asked everyone uh, that you have to answer. Yes, sir. Let's so go. before <laughs> before we get to the to the close of this interview, so the context is important. Um, so imagine you're at an airport. And uh, they're about to close the door to your gate. And whatever the reason is, you can't miss the flight. There's something important on the other end, whether it's a, a trip abroad to Ghana or, or what have you. You're not missing it. Uh, but you bump into somebody who's either been recently diagnosed or uh, is struggling with their life with diabetes in any way. Uh, and so in 30 seconds or less, what's the one thing that you leave them with? They were recently diagnosed. So in 30 seconds or less, I would say, you know what? It might feel hard right now, um, but I promise you it gets better. Um, and whatever you don't know, there will always be people 
or resources available to assist you as long as you are willing to seek them out. Um, and then I'd also, because I believe in like cultivating relationships, meaningful ones with everyone I meet, especially if they have diabetes. So of course I'd leave them with my number um, so that they could feel free to <laughs> call me at any point in the event that they needed encouragement or had any um, questions or just wanted to complain. Um, I always try to make myself available for people. So, oh man, I never, I never realized how important it would be for me to complain with someone else that has type one. I like it was, it's the most refreshing world opening experience. Exactly. I started to do that with Gloria and Aisha. Hey girls, I love y'all. Um, who are my diabetes <laughs> and it has been life-changing, seriously. There have been moments when I've been in tears so flustered because I feel like folks just don't get it and they might say some insensitive things. And I can immediately go to them and they'll be, you know, just so empathetic and give me such reassurance and I appreciate them for that. So yeah, that's value always in connecting with other diabetics and being able to speak to them about whatever, whenever. Well, in the spirit of that, um... I know we plugged your Instagram is just a little sugar, uh, and we'll link to that in the show notes. And your blog, I believe, is justalittlesugar.com. Yes. All right. So uh, definitely check out, subscribe, reach out, um, use all those social media networking powers uh, out there available to all of you, and connect with Ariel, guys. This is this uh, build this community and uh, and support each other most of all. Yes. And thank you. Thank you again, Rob. I'm super excited uh, that we had this opportunity to speak and I'm excited to see what comes of it. Oh, I am too. Thank you so much for the time. Uh, it was an awesome interview and I look forward to uh, whatever the next project is that we get to work on. Okay. <laughs> well